Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman. And, and look, whatever your plans are for your Friday, for your weekend, whatever decisions you're going to make, whatever, whatever calls you're going to make, whatever you're going to get into, I hope it's more fun and ambitious and daring than what we saw from the Titans and Steelers coaching staffs on Thursday night. Pittsburgh Steelers outlast the Tennessee Titans 20 to 16 in a game that was exactly the smash mouth slog. I think a lot of us were expecting rookie quarterback. Will Levis definitely impresses in his second NFL start, but it's Steelers linebacker Quan Alexander who picks him off in the end zone to snag a last second win dying seconds of the game. Titans did have a chance to win another one with Will Levis under center, but As fun as the ending was, and it did come down to the final play, to be fair, NFL always finds a way to entertain me in the end, but the story of this game comes down to one of the more hilariously conservative fourth quarters that I've seen in a while from both teams. So I want to rewind to the four minute mark of the game. If you didn't watch good, honestly, I hope you were doing something fun on Thursday. Kenny Pickett leads an 11 play 92 yard touchdown drive to take the lead 20 to 16, little over four minutes to play. Deontay Johnson actually caps it with a short touchdown catch his first since the end of the 2021 season. I'm sure fantasy football players are well aware. It's the first quarterback Deontay Johnson's caught a touchdown from since Ben Roethlisberger. I love that stat. It's crazy. Okay. Titans start the next drive at midfield. Personal foul on the extra point by Pittsburgh allows for a long kickoff return. They got the ball right at the logo. Plenty of time. The world is their their oyster. And here's what they do. They go end around on first and 10, five yards. Okay, that's cool. I I like it. Maybe it has a chance to hit big. It's a little creative. Second and five, Derrick Henry, left tackle, basically no gain against the solid Pittsburgh defense. Third and four, a shotgun draw to Ty J Spears, the rookie runner zero yards. They do go for it on fourth, but just keep in mind. So if if you're keeping scored, they didn't put the ball in their quarterback's hands at midfield one time with three, something to play in a four point game, fourth and four, they take a deep shot to Traylon Burks who gets hurt attempting to make the catch important to note. Traylon was carted off after the injury. TV broadcast mentions he's got full movements in all of his extremities, hoping for the best for Traylon Burks. It was a really, really scary situation as he just misses coming down with a big, big catch. Point remains. One of the more conservative sequences I've seen, even for a team with a rookie quarterback. I mean, this is still the NFL. This is still a guy that was drafted in the top 40. Oh, by the way, threw four touchdowns, four touchdowns the week before. Oh, by the way, was playing really well against Pittsburgh. Make no mistake, if I'm not doing a good enough job telling you, Will Levis threw for 262 yards in this game. The interception came at the very death, the last play, got sacked four times, got hit 16 times. Will Levis had some fantastic throws, some fantastic poise dealing with the Pittsburgh pass rush in this game. And Mike Vrabel, Tim Kelly, the offensive coordinator, whoever makes that decision, took the ball out of his hands in a crucial moment. Never you fret. Because the Pittsburgh Steelers one-upped them. They take over at midfield. Steelers offensive coordinator Matt Canada tops that with three straight handoffs, one of which comes right before the two-minute warning. And the other ones are followed by Tennessee timeouts that allow them to preserve 
all of the clock in the world. The way that these two teams were absolutely terrified of their coaching staff, or excuse me, were terrified of their quarterbacks with a game on the line. I know they're young, but it, it, it was, it was something to behold. I will give the Titans a little bit of credit. Will Levis does lead the Titans to the Pittsburgh red zone with a chance to win the game, but maybe I can see some of the rationale for the conservative play calling. He almost threw two interceptions on that drive and eventually threw one to Quan Alexander to seal the game. Even still, he was playing well enough to give you a shot. There was a similar sequence at the end of the first half. Tennessee drove to the Pittsburgh 18-yard line with 30 seconds until halftime. They had a timeout remaining. Will Levis, by the way, four of six on this drive, getting them to the red zone with 56 passing yards. Third and 10 with 30 seconds and a timeout. They call another draw to Tajay Spears, a theme for the night. Just give up calls, up the gut to the rookie running back. They call timeout with three seconds to play. They kick a field goal for a 13-10 lead. I understand that Will Levis got hit a lot in this game. I understand that TJ Watt and the Steelers pass rush is no joke. But I don't think you can win many games being that afraid to let your quarterback have the ball. I mean, he's got he's to throw it, and he's got to make some of those mistakes to grow as a player. Not sure how pretty it's looked in any game this season, but the Steelers get the win. They are five in three. They are right in the thick of a loaded AFC playoff race. So as much as I might not enjoy watching most of their games, can't argue with the end results to this point. Titans, Will Levis is a fun player. I think not the way I would have called some of this, but at the very least, I'm very intrigued to watch this guy continue to play and grow. The arm strength speaks for itself, but even some of the arm angles, the release that he has is so fast. It enables him to throw into some really fun windows to attempt some really fun throws. It's not all just deep shots either. Some of the things he was doing, layering balls in between levels of defenders, you know, getting it over the linebackers, fitting it under the safeties. He was really, really impressive, even in a losing effort. But maybe we let the young quarterbacks continue to try to do that stuff. Just, just my two cents. Not that the coaching staffs are listening to me. All right, that wraps it up for Thursday night football. Best wishes to Traylon Burks. Want to make sure we say that one more time on to week nine and what a loaded slate it is. We've been talking about it all week. It's hard to even know where to begin, but of course we're going to begin with America's game of the week. It's a doozy. It's the first meeting between the Cowboys and the Eagles up at Lincoln financial field, Philadelphia in the fall. It's going to be brisk. It's going to be awesome. I'm so excited for it. We had a chance to talk with our guy, Greg Olson, calling the game on Fox this weekend, getting into all things Eagles and Cowboys. We've got another segment, Eagles and Cowboys, talking about the brotherly shove as well. Stay tuned for all things Cowboys Eagles coming up next. All right, Greg, it's it's an especially big one this week. Don't need to say a whole lot about it. Cowboys at Eagles. I wanted to get your perspective as a former player, I mean, it doesn't matter which rivalry, but every team plays a few games like this a year where, you know, you've had it circled. The fans and the media are going to get more excited about it. Maybe the locker room is going to be a little more juice than usual. How much harder is it as a player to block out the noise, to block out the anticipation when it's, when it's one of these marquee matchups like Cowboys Eagles? 
Yeah, I, I think every coach, right, they, they preach all season long that, you know, it's one game at a time and every game we're going to treat the same. And, and I think that's that's true. I think the teams that try to get up for the big games and then have letdowns and they kind of ride that roller coaster of, of week in and week out in the NFL, I think those are the teams that struggle. I think with that being said, there's definitely a, a, a renewed energy. There's definitely a different sense around the building. There's more people around. There's more every time you turn the TV on, the game's the commercial, the game's the highlight. I think the advantage that these two teams has have is that it's this is not new to them, right? They've they know every time they play twice a year, it's the game of the week. It's the primetime game. It's America's game of the week or whatever it is. It's this is not new to them. These are teams that our playoff teams, you know, the last couple of years, you know, Philly just played all the way through to the Super Bowl. So I think playing in games that feel elevated from a typical regular season game, I don't think is anything new to a lot of these players or coaches. So I don't necessarily think it's a huge factor for either one of these teams. I think obviously there's a lot, you know, a lot can be made as far as the division race and playoff seedings and all that, but roughly at the halfway point, there's still so much left in the season. Um, I think you have to be careful making the games more than they are. I want to start with the Eagles side of this. I, I feel guilty. I, you know, I've, I've talked to you about the Eagles a handful of times this year, and obviously they come up a lot. Every time I'm talking about the Eagles, I feel like I'm focused on how much better they could be. Uh, and, and, and I mean, I still think that's true, but at the end of the day, you have the best record in the NFL. You got arguably the best receiver in the NFL. I mean, th there's a lot to feel good about with this team. I'm curious when you watch them, what is the one thing that, that you think the Eagles are doing most impressively right now? Yeah. I mean, most impressively is their passing offense. I, I think the, the, especially the last couple of weeks, I mean, just look back what Jalen hurts was able to do. I think the run that, you know, just last week against Washington, the run that AJ Brown is on, you know, no player ever has been on such a good run as far as six games over 125 yards or whatever the specifics are. So I, I think their development as a passing offense that now has the ability when they have the lead to lean on that big offensive line and the run game and kind of run games out at the end and wear you down. But I think that they're going to pass to get the lead. I, I think so much has been made about their running attack and, and all that over the years. And that's true. But this year we have not seen Jalen Hurts be used pretty much at all as a designed runner. Obviously now he's got the knee brace and, you know, has some sort of some level of, of knee injury that he's been dealing with for a couple of weeks. So that's really hindered, you know, their, their willingness to turn him into a runner. He'll have a scramble play here and there to keep a play alive, but it's not the foundation of the offense like it was, you know, a couple of years ago. So I think their development as a true passing game, um, weapons, offensive line protection, the play of Jalen Hurts, it's a, it's a big challenge uh, for Dallas this week to defend this passing game of, uh, of Philly. And I don't know if two years ago we would have said that. I think that's a great point. And I'm curious, like, when you, when you go into a matchup like this, a lot of times I feel like defenses want to answer with physicality, whether that's trying to out-physical a receiver or throwing off the timing of the offense. But A.J. Brown is such a physical player. I mean, is – is it a mistake to try to do that? Or, or how would you try to limit A.J. Brown if that's even possible? Well, that's that's the question. I, I think the interesting thing when you dive into the numbers and you really dive into the film, the thing that's really struck me going back is seeing how teams have come into the game deciding to play Philly. They still play them with a lot of heavy boxes. They still play them on first and second down 
like they have to stop the run at all costs. And then you wonder, you look at the box score and Jalen Hurts throws for over 300 and A.J. Brown's got 150 and two touchdowns and everyone goes, wow, they're so good. They're going to get their yards in the passing game. A.J. Brown, you're going to have him covered and he's going to big body you. He's going to contested catch. He's going to take a slant and hit a seam and he's going to make his plays. So will Devontae Smith. So will Goddard, right? They have a lot of weapons, but you can't make it easy on them. I, I don't I don't necessarily think the plan coming in is for any team, not just Dallas, is first and second down. I need to have a seven or eight man box based on the personnel. and We are not going to let them run the ball. I'm not really worried about them running the ball on me on first and second down. If they want to chip away and chip away, I'm willing to play that game if I'm an opposing defense. What I can't let them do is let them throw the ball over my head. I can't let them get explosives, chunk plays, 40, 50-yard bombs to Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown. That's why they've been such a handful and so hard for teams to beat when they have, you know, a competitive game is they can't limit the explosives. If you want to keep this a low-possession game and you want to let them go the length of the field, you get a few red zone stops, maybe a turnover mixed in there. All of a sudden now, instead of them being in the 30s, now all of a sudden you're only chasing a low 20s game. That's a significant difference and I just don't quite understand why teams continue to play them. Maybe how you would have played them a year or two ago. I do want to touch on that. I think it's, I, I looked this up last night. I think these are the top two teams in the NFL in 10 plus play drives, which I don't think it's not particularly surprising, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see uh, who can disrupt that more. I suppose you mentioned turnovers with Philly. I don't think it's fair to blame Jalen Hurts for all of this the same way it wasn't fair to blame Dak Prescott last year, but 11 turnovers halfway through the season is still a marked increase from last year. When you watch it, is is this decision-making? Is it bad luck? Is it miscommunication? What would you say has led to some of these? Yeah, I think the answer is everything. I think anytime you have a rash of, of turnover-worthy plays, whether they actually result in a turnover or not, I think the big stat you want to look at is percentage of plays that are turnover-worthy plays, right? Just because a guy drops a pick, you know, it hits him in the chest, it doesn't go down, but it's still a play that you want to try to eliminate. So I think that turnover-worthy plays is a really interesting metric. And I think anytime there's a rash of that or anytime there's an increase compared to years past, I think it's a combination of everything. I think sometimes it could be just a bad break, right? A couple bad bounces, a couple tip balls, uh, missed assignment, wrong route, um, could be pass protection breakdown. Obviously, Philly's offense is, offensive line is really good, so obviously they don't have a ton of those. But I think anytime there's always a shared blame. Of course, the quarterback is always going to be in the crosshairs. You mentioned Dak. That was kind of the storyline coming out of last year with the Cowboys. But um, I think it's a shared responsibility. Protecting the ball and taking the ball away is the key to every single team. It's the key to winning in the NFL. You look back at these two matchups last year, even though – Dak and and Dak and um and and Jalen weren't necessarily playing against each other. Minshew started one, Cooper Rush started one. But um the point being when Dallas lost game one, the matchup last year, they had three turnovers. When Philly on Christmas Eve, we called that game, when they lost to Dallas on the road in Dallas, they had four turnovers. Granted, it wasn't Jalen Hurts. But the point standing is turnovers are always the key to these matchups this week, even more so. It's not every week when we get to talk, Greg, that you're doing the same, you know, you're calling the same team twice in a row. That's the case here. Had the Cowboys Rams game last week. And I remember we talked about them trying to open up their passing attack. Lo and behold, they did it. Their first 300 yard game of the season, four passing touchdowns. I'm curious, 
watching it live and then re-watching it, getting ready for this game, what what did you see that that enabled that breakout against LA? Yeah, I think like we talked about last week, you know, Dak had been having a good season. You know, turnovers were down, completion percentages were up, but it was really at the expense of attacking down the field, generating explosive plays, something that they had really excelled at over the last couple of seasons under Kellen Moore. And now I think under Mike McCarthy, they were still trying to figure out what is that balance between being a downfield passing attack, but also being a little bit more conservative, keeping the defense fresh, keeping more sustained drives and all of those boxes they've checked all season. The difference last week versus the Rams was the big plays down the field, the chunk plays to CD lamb, the chunk plays, you know, getting Brandon cooks involved, their ability to be a little bit more explosive and dynamic in the passing game, as opposed to just death by a thousand paper cuts. Look, they still had some real long drives that first drive, that first possession of the third quarter, the Rams went down and scored to cut it to, to 16. They got the ball back and they had the ball, I think for like 17 plays or like something crazy. And they went down, kicked the field goal, made it 19 and the game was over. So they still had the ability to sustain because they're so good on third down, but it was the explosive plays. It was throwing the ball over your head from the 30 yard line, as opposed to having to score everything from inside to five, like they've had in the past games in the red zone had really, you know, red zone offense still continues to be a little bit of a struggle. So it was Dak's best game by far. That version of Dak is probably as good a quarterback as as there is in the league. And um, if they can get that, week in and week out that's a different animal now that that's a really good team when their passing attack is able to operate like that speaking of week in and week out i'm curious this i mean it's an amazing matchup for a lot of reasons but this eagles secondary they were so good a couple weeks ago against miami and then we kind of see them revert back to their old ways giving up a, a ton of yardage to to washington last week where do you see that matchup? I mean, is is that success that the Cowboys had against the Rams? Can they replicate that against this secondary? Do you think? I, I think that's the million dollar question, right? I, I think this this Eagles defense is still trying to kind of find its way, which sounds funny for a team that has the best de- best uh, record in the league and sits right. here uh, at you know roughly the halfway point, sitting atop you know not only the conference but the best record in the NFL. So I, I but. I think they're still kind of adjusting the Sean Desai scheme, you know, little tweaks, little differences. Obviously, Jonathan Gannon, the defensive coordinator, moved on to be the head coach in Arizona. So they've got some new pieces back there. They're still trying to figure out how that all works, but their rush needs to their rush needs to carry them. They need to be able to play light boxes. They need their front to control the game, and they need to keep as many guys in coverage and keep the integrity of that back end in place as many times as possible. I don't think they need to be overly aggressive stacking the box. I don't think they need to be overly aggressive bringing a lot of second-level pressures. I think the more coverage players intact, the better. And just say, hey, my front, I've got five. Real When they go that five down and they got their five top guys in there with Sweat and Hassan Reddick on the outside, Fletcher Cox, and then obviously Jordan Davis and Jalen Carter. I mean, that's a five. That's a nightmare if you got to block the guy. So I, I think that that's got to be their pressure activation with the front and and try to play pass defense and if if the cowboys decide they want to run the ball we've been the best run defense all year um we'll take our chances stopping it with our front i can't stop thinking about how excited i am to see jalen carter go against tyler smith the second year guard in dallas so i'll i'll leave you with this this is one of those games where i mean gosh there's there's a pro bowler on pro bowler type of matchup all over the field on both sides of the ball 
which one excites you most when you think about getting to call this game on Sunday? Man, the, the thing that jumps out, you're, you're so right. The thing that jumps out about this game is that there's just stars all over the place, right? There is just star players on both sides of the ball, skill players in the trenches up front. It's, this is as, this is as good of a combined roster as maybe any combination of teams, you know, that could play each other in the league and let alone to be division rivals at a place like Philly. I mean, it has all the ingredients to feel like a playoff environment, which is going to be awesome. Um, you know, I think the Micah Parsons, he's yet to record a full sack in his career. He has half a sack in his career against Eagles, you know, against the Eagles. So, you know, can they find a matchup? Obviously, the Eagles are really good at tackle. They're really good at center. Can they find some matchups on the interior? Do they have to do some overloads? How, do, how does Dan Quinn unleash Micah Parsons to have the production we're accustomed to seeing him have that he hasn't quite had? in the handful of matchups uh, in his early career here now against Philadelphia. I, I think that, I think that's one of the matchups I'm anxious to see. It's going to be awesome. Any way you slice it, this is, these are the, these, this is why you do it. I mean, they're all good, but this is about as good as, as regular season football gets, I think. So Greg, I, I appreciate the time. I hope it uh, delivers on the promise this weekend, my man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much guys. What's that? You thought we were done with Cowboys Eagles? Not just quite yet. It is America's game of the week. After all, it is the NFC East. It's one of the biggest matchups of the regular season so far. We want to make sure we do it right for a game with as many eyes on it as this one. So we have a separate piece for you. We want to take a deep dive, a thorough look at one of the key elements of this Eagles team. And therefore, I think one of the key elements of this game, you guessed it. It's the brotherly shove. I'm not calling it anything else. That's what we call it on this show. I had a chance to talk to our own NFC East writer, Eagles expert, Ralph Vacchiano. We also had Fox gambling analyst, co-host of the Bear Bets podcast, Jeff Schwartz. Had a nice little dialogue about the rugby play that's taking the NFL by storm this season. Check it out. All right, guys, this, this felt like a perfect week to do this. I mean, at this point, we're halfway through the 2023 season. We know all about the brotherly shove, the tush push, the rugby play, the Eagles fourth and short, whatever you want to call it, we are up to speed on it, but it feels like a good week to talk about it. Eagles and Cowboys at Lincoln financial field on Sunday. It's going to be America's game of the week. It's going to be seen by God knows how many people. And I just feel kind of confident that it's going to be a talking point, no matter what happens uh, after the game. So I wanted to, to bring in you two, two guys who I think can help us, expound on the topic I'll, Ralph I want to start with you interesting wrinkle to the the lore of this play on Sunday the Eagles beat the commanders 38 31 and the brotherly shove was a big talking point once again not just because they failed rarely I think it's just the fourth time they've failed doing it all season but also because they modified it they turned it into a completely different play I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through what you saw in that win against the commanders yeah, well, first of all, they, they've modified it a couple of times this season. I don't think I saw that at all last year uh, when I look back at it. Uh, but this year, they did come out a couple of times in slightly altered formations. And a couple of times where, or at least once I can recall, where they ended up running wide on it um, instead of running right down the middle. It's not the wisest idea when you're that good at a play. I don't know why you would necessarily decide to change up, but... Um, I think from the Eagles' perspective, they think that with all this focus of attention on it, 
people are trying to figure out ways to stop it. So they're trying to keep the defense off balance a little bit. But when push comes to shove, no pun intended, they know how good that play is. They know. I when think they you intended up. that pun a little bit. I think you I intended may, that pun a little bit. I may have intended that pun. Yes. Uh, but you know, they know, they know how good it is. They know, they know how powerful that play is. It's going to succeed more than 90% of the time. So if they want to rely on it, uh, they will, and it will work. And if it does, you know, if they tried on third and one and it doesn't work, chances are it's going to work on fourth and one. So, you know, why would you go away from it? I think it failed against Washington because, well, look what they're running up against, right? They're running into Jerron Payne and Jonathan Allen and a, a pretty good defensive front. That's the way to stop it. Cause it's really, when you boil down to it, and I'm sure Jeff can break this down much more than I can, but to me, it's always just looked like strength against strength. And if you've got the strength to push back and stop it, you may win in most cases that Eagles middle of their line and a powerful quarterback, they're going to win. Which you alluded to it perfectly. We are joined by Jeff Schwartz, former NFL offensive lineman, a guy who might know a thing or two about this. Jeff, is it, is it as easy as saying Jason Kelsey, Landon Dickerson are just better at leveraging and pushing than anybody else in the NFL? Cause we know other teams aren't doing it as well as the Eagles. It does start with Kelsey, right? His ability to get low, and you see him when he's doing it, he's kind of crab -like. He's like, you know, crabbing down there, right? He's just like low. Because the way to stop this, to go to the end of this discussion, is you have to cut the legs of the offensive linemen so they fall straight down, and then you can jump over the top as linebackers and hammer the quarterback. And one way to stop it, by the way, is unfortunately what happened to Purdy, right? If you, if you hit a quarterback up high and they start getting hurt a little bit, that ends, this ends the play, right? Now, that was a normal state, not a tush push. The other part of this that I think is not talked about enough is Jalen Hurts waits about half a second before he goes forward. It's a big difference compared to a lot of other guys that, that, that do this. A lot of other guys just try to like snap and go, right? He snaps and he waits that split second for his lineman to get a little bit of push and then he rides the backs of them over top, right? So he's not, he's not getting the brunt of that initial contact. And he's sort of finding that that crease typically between, as you mentioned, the left guard and the center. But that split second of wait time, I think, really allows it to sort of happen. And then he's able to use his strength, because he is a strong football player, to use his legs to push him over the top. If you go right now, then you almost negate your legs because you're on top alignment too fast. So I think that that, that, that that ability for him to sort of wait that split second and, and have the patience to know that his guys are going are gonna to execute really helps us play work. That is a really fascinating point that I hadn't considered. I mean, everybody that follows the NFL at this point knows that Jalen can squat 600 pounds. We've heard that. But I think that's the interesting point is, I mean, we've seen plenty big, plenty athletic quarterbacks not generate as much push. So what you're saying is almost like a running back, like having the patience to let those blocks develop is, is equally as big of a part of it. Yes, if, if you watch, just watch next time. It's a, it's like a tick. He waits a tick before he decides to go. And again, it's over the left guard, as we mentioned many times beforehand. But it allows him to, again, to get his strength before he runs and kind of load his body up. But two, like if it doesn't work quite with the left guard, he can kind of bounce to the left guard, left tackle. He can go to the right. Like he's not he's not beholden to one part of, of the line. And then I think a lot of times in these in the ones the quarterback seeks that fail – it's when guys and quarterbacks just basically close their eyes. They, they take they take the snap and they just go right now to whatever hole they, they predetermine is going to be there. And Hurst doesn't do that. He treats it like a running back. And, and that's an important part of this. I don't – the squat thing is so funny to me because he never really 
uses his legs to drive like the pile forward. He's on top of the lineman and they're pushing him. So the idea that his squat number is the reason why this works to me is not at all valid for, I think it's worked because his technique is really good. He uses good technique. I mean, Tom Brady for years was great to see. He did the same thing. He was able to read the defense. He went a little quicker, but he knew exactly where to go. I mean, they often did it in times when you didn't think they were going to do it. Didn't quick count or whatnot. Um, like it's it's the technique of of his of the way he does it more than I think his six hundred pound squat. Never, I think the answer to that is never underestimate the power of a viral video. I think you know Jalen just putting <laughs> some some racks on the bar in the weight room will will do wonders for public perception. Yes. But that does, Ralph. That raises an interesting point, and I'm not trying to question Jalen Hurts' toughness. But he has been, he's clearly dealing with something with his knee. Like you, you see it. I know he's not on the injury report. Nick Sirianni has said that he's fine, but you can see a difference in the way he plays. Did you see a difference when they were executing the, the brotherly shove against the commanders? Or do you think that can, can hinder the way they run this play moving forward? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I noticed, um, specifically the play against the commanders um you know having anything to do with his knee i can see where it could um if only that you know jeff's i'm sure right that the the squatting and the leg push aren't as big a factor as the offensive line and and the push from behind but you know he does have to move a little bit and move quickly relatively quickly into the right gap and it looks to me to be a generally dangerous play. It's a pile of, you know, 22 people all trying to stop where 11 of them trying to stop him and others trying to push him from behind. If he is dealing with something, you know, I, I might think twice if I were the Eagles about putting him in that situation, if it really could bother him. So, you know, I could definitely see it being a factor going forward, but um, uh, you know, so far I can't say I've looked at the tush push and thought, man, he looks really gimpy. That's not going to work because again, most of the time it's worked. It's true. I just, I guess I wonder if, if you know that the knee is compromised and even if you're not like driving off of it, putting your quarterback into a, a scrum like that, when his knee might not be at full health, I wonder if they have second thoughts, but at the same time, it, it's such a crucial part of their identity. I mean, I don't think you can underrate it. What's the difference between him scrambling on third and eight versus the tush push with his knee? To, to me, it's all the same. Yeah. Right? I don't, yeah. I never, you know, I, I, you know, Chiefs fans, whenever I tweet out that they need to just run a quarterback, well, Mahomes hurt his knee. I'm like, but they run him on speed option. Like they run him like in playoff games all the time. I, I like, what's the problem with doing quarterbacks? See, to me, that, that should not matter. In fact, I would argue that just moving straight forward in a line on a tush push with help from your teammates is easier in your knee than third and eight trying to get away from, uh, you know, the Cowboys pass rush this weekend. Jeff, have you, I mean, obviously this play has taken the league by storm over the last couple of years, but nothing new, nothing in football is truly new. Like in your experience playing, did you ever run anything at least similar to this? Or, or even if you sure. didn't just doing, just doing regular sneaks and stuff. I mean, what, what type of toll do those type of plays take on an offensive lineman? We didn't do it very often. Um, you know, I played with Eli then in my career. Eli ran zero quarterbacks. He's, I think, his entire career. I can't imagine he even ran one. Um, you know, beginning of my career was Jake DeLome. He didn't run any quarterback sneaks. Uh, Alex Smith, you know, we was mobile. We were in gun running RPO stuff on third down. We didn't have to get him under center. Um, you know, throughout my career, mostly it was Tom Brady. He was the only one doing it. Uh, he was just the guy that always ran the sneaks. No one else would do it. Um, 
every time I watch Kelsey do it, I feel bad. Like I, I don't, he's not a big fella for an offensive lineman. And he just looks pain. Like it looks painful every time he's doing it. He's down there at the bottom of a pile. Like I mentioned, sort of like crab walking to try to clear some space for his quarterback. And he's not, again, he's not big. And so I imagine it takes a toll, but in the end, when it works, it, it pays off, right? If it ends up getting you victories, you, you continue to do it. But and also too, look, let's be fair. If it hurt Kelsey or hurt Dickerson or hurt anyone else, they wouldn't run it, right? It, it would, it would be taken out if it was really painful for the, for, for the guys. But um, you know, it's it's a scrum, man. I mean, it's it's like you know rugby football, right? You're you're getting down, getting low, and trying to root root out a guy in front of you. You did mention, and and we saw it from the 49ers, Fred Warner went right over that pile. Is that? I mean, it, a is it realistic to think that a defense can can do that consistently enough to stop the Eagles from doing it? And I can't help but notice the Dallas Cowboys employ a particularly athletic linebacker by the name of Micah Parsons. Maybe we could see them throw some kind of wrinkle at this on Sunday. So that's why they put in that reverse or whatever spin out thing they did hand off to Smith, right? It's like, this is the exact thing because if you're going to try to throw your linebackers over the top, well, you have less defenders to go to, 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 you know, to get someone on the edge. Like that's why they threw this wrinkle in is now uh, I'm sure they're going to have, hey, say, you know, Parsons, okay, you're on the quarterback. Someone else, someone else now has to account for the wide receiver running out, you know, to to the edge. And that's one less player that can account for Jalen Hurts. So that's why they put this in was to be able to, to you know, have defenses think a little bit and, and maybe not react as fast. Um, but, you know, and again, I, the, with Hurts, as I mentioned, waiting that split second, he, he avoids sort of that initial contact, right? Um, and the way he's able to sort of duck in behind his line and the guys push him over the top, he seems to avoid a lot of that contact. The thing with Purdy was sort of a perfect storm because he got held up. If quarterbacks get held up on the sneak, that's when those linebacks can, can, can come in. I'm not, again, advocating for anyone to hit someone in the head, but that's what happens, right? Like when you're up, when you're upright in that sneak, you get hit in the head. When you're – like Hurts is down, right? He's tucked in a ball – he's not going to get hit in the head very often. So it's hard to do that unless you're able to get lower than Kelsey. And I just love when the camera zooms in and like, I mean, they're literally like face to face the hand. I mean, they're, they've been called for offsides twice when it's actually the, the other team's hand like in the way or Kelsey's hands. Down. It's just old school football. It's just a big scrum. So there's a lot they can do off of it. It's Plaxia Pass they can do off of it. There's other, like there's a lot of options that they haven't shown yet. And they can come in a big moment of a, of a, of a game. Jeff, I, I don't want to speak for you. I mean, it, it, you, you're you kind of talking about it with admiration in your voice. Like, would you be bummed as an O-lineman to see this play go away? What, why would they – like, where are they going to ban it? What's the what's the rule that's going to ban it? You can't I'm, – I'm with you. Basically, I think people are just annoyed that the Eagles do it too well. That's, sure. that's all I got. But what – I mean, like, are you going to say no more pushing of teammates? That means if, if a running back is being held up by a linebacker, I can't come and – and hit the running back. I can't like try to move him. Wide receiver, same thing. I have to stand there like, and oh well, sorry, I can't. That's the rule now. I can't touch him. Like I don't. What, what's the rule going to be? No tush push. Like that seems silly. I mean, they're not going to do that for one specific play. My thing is like the way you stop it is you don't put the eels in fourth and one. Right? You're better on third down. Like that's that's what you have to do against them, and you have to account for that. Right? I mean, on third and four, they're more likely to run the football because they're going to go for a fourth and one, right? So you have to account for that on defense. And so um, I don't think it should be banned. Um, and you have to find other ways to stop it or, again, be better on first and second down. So fourth down ends up being shorter. You know, and Jeff makes a great point that, you know, this is there. there's more pushing going on in the NFL 
than just on quarterback sneaks. And it pushing a player for a little bit extra is not new at all. And I know that it was banned and for a while, and it was obvious that you, you know, you would get flagged for it. You couldn't carry a player and all that. But, um, you know, the people who are criticized this and say, well, it's not a football play. To me, it just seems like one of the ultimate football plays. It's just, you know, again, I, did, I understand there's a lot of technique, but it's the strength. And you see a guy, he's he needs that extra yard. You go in, you hit him a little bit. You push him a little bit. And you get that extra yard. You do whatever it takes to get there. And I think in football, we've seen it all over the field. And certainly you see defenders doing it. Uh, you know, if a, a defensive lineman is holding up the quarterback, but he's starting to go backwards, you're going to see linebackers pounding into his back, trying to push the other way. So that to me is exactly what football is. I don't understand other than the fact that the Eagles are so good at it. I don't understand why so many people are against it. Whatever, whatever argument that people had for banning it, I think went out the window when everybody started trying to run it and they're terrible at it. Uh, right. I mean, I, we watch a lot of football and I know it's worked for other teams, but I think at last check, the Eagles are converting 92% of the time when they do this, like 41 yeah. out of 45 attempts. So uh, until you, until you can match that production, I say, just get better at stopping it, which the other side of this is somebody's going to find something for this. That's the way the NFL works. It might take a little while longer, but I'm confident we're going to see somebody come up with a fun counter to it. I can't wait to see it guys. I appreciate the time. This was fun. Hopefully the, uh, the next iteration of the brotherly shove against Dallas is equally as fun. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks Thanks anytime. Time. Way, way before the birds and the boys get after it, we've got some morning football on a Sunday. Week nine brings us our first Germany football game. The Chiefs and the Dolphins kicking off from Frankfurt Stadium. It's the home of Eintracht Frankfurt, currently sitting seventh in the Bundesliga table. Come for the in American football. Stay for some German soccer updates. All right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because this is this is clearly a big one. It's the dynasty or the closest thing to it in the current NFL, the Kansas city chiefs. And we're going to call this the, are the dolphins legit bowl? I don't necessarily think it's fair, but that's where we are. The Miami dolphins are six and two. They're on top of their division. They have the best offense in football. We can comfortably say right now that they are very, very likely a playoff team, but they happen to have a minus 42 point differential when they go up against fellow playoff contenders. The Buffalo Bills beat them by 28 about a month ago. They got another shot to prove themselves against Philadelphia a couple weeks ago. They fell well short. They lost by 14. Regardless of the reality, because again, this, this is a playoff team. I, maybe that'll age poorly, but I really don't think so. Barring some sort of terrible injury, knock on some wood. This is a good team, but regardless of that reality, the noise is only going to get louder if the Dolphins can't beat or at least threaten the Chiefs this weekend. This is about as vulnerable as the Kansas City Chiefs has, have looked since Patrick Mahomes became the starter. So, Dolphins, I'm not even asking you to win the game, honestly. If you can't at least push them, the narrative is going to be that you're not for real. You're not worth taking seriously. Cool, we'll see you in the playoffs, and we'll see you out of the playoffs very shortly after that. Again, is it fair? Probably not. Is that the way we work in this take-based economy? Absolutely. It's funny to think how much more sense this matchup would have made a year ago if you think about it. Turns out it came a year later. Yes, the Chiefs won a Super Bowl without Tyree Kill. Nobody's taking that away from him. But this looks like what a lot of people expected the Chiefs to be when they traded him away. Tyree Kill, 25 games 
since the Chiefs traded him to Miami. 2,700 receiving yards, 15 touchdowns. It's averaging seven catches for 110 yards per game over a season and a half in Miami. It makes sense that the Chiefs are struggling without him. Kudos to them for figuring it out last year. But if you want to call it the bill coming due, if you just want to call it investments in replacements not working out, I think that's that's the more realistic thing. It is what it is. Tyree Kill is he is an NFL Offensive Player of the Year favorite. He is at least in the MVP conversation. It's already at a thousand yards eight eight weeks through the season. I don't know what else you can say about him. For the Chiefs, the challenge continues of finding somebody in 2023. All right, so we can stop hand wringing about it. It is an issue, but the Chiefs are still six and two. Their loss to Denver broke a six game winning streak. Like they're going to be okay, I think. But it is interesting to to think this is what they have moving forward. The trade deadline has come and gone. A lot of people speculated that they might go after a receiver. Maybe New England will send you a Juju Smith-Schuster back into the fold like you did already with Nicole Hardman. Didn't happen. So this is the group the Chiefs have. I'm curious about one in particular. Only one Chiefs receiver so far this season has caught 20 or more passes, and that would be Rasheed Rice, the rookie out of SMU. I think that's the guy that you look to if you're Kansas City to try to establish some consistency. Because really, again, I understand why Patrick Mahomes is having trust issues. He's had 15 drop passes this season. That's the fourth most in the NFL. Chiefs have had multiple drops in six of their eight games. Three of those came against Denver. It's It's been a problem every single week. But the good news, Rasheed Rice, though young, seems to be a player to me. He has 30 catches on 40 targets this season. And over the last three weeks, he's getting targeted 21% of the time he runs a route. He does have four drops on the season. Remember, he had an up and down debut against Detroit, the game that they eventually lost without Travis Kelsey. He's only got one drop in the last month. So maybe the consistency is coming. Maybe this young cat is a guy that Patrick Mahomes can turn to. I will say this. The problem for the Chiefs is, this is a, an 11 personnel team. This is a team that likes to have three wide receivers on the field. They use that personnel group 62% of the time. So who are your other two guys? Cool. We got Travis Kelsey. He's, he's going to be on the field. Maybe we like Rasheed Rice. Kadarius Tony. he helped them win a Super Bowl, but the trade just hasn't carried forward into 2023. 109 receiving yards so far this season. He's only been targeted twice in the last two weeks. MVS, Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Looked like a, a breakout moment against the Chargers. Followed that up with a fumble in Denver. And I know Chiefs fans are are frustrated with Sky Moore, the second-year receiver, on the weekly. We'll see if Nicole Hardman can pick up some snaps. He also had a fumble in Denver. The more I talk about it, the more I think this was just a perfect storm of things going wrong for the Chiefs against the Broncos. I don't think the sky is falling. I do think they still have Patrick Mahomes. But this is still an offense that's trying to figure things out. It's looked really good in two games and very up and down in the other six. And now you've got the most explosive offense, your former star receiver doing his thing over there. And this Dolphins team looking healthier. Remember, the Dolphins were severely hampered by injury in that game against Philadelphia. We don't want to make excuses, but I think that's just a fact. Can't say this too sure. It's... it's it's too early in the week, but things are trending in the right direction for Miami. It looks like left tackle to Armstead will play in this game. It looks like center Connor Williams will play in this game. 
cornerback Xavier Howard looking likely to play in this game. And Jalen Ramsey is back from his knee injury. He played last week against new England. So that's both of your top two corners, two of your injured offensive linemen. So this could be as close to the ideal version of the Miami dolphins as you could ask for. I know Devon HN is still on injured reserve. Raheem Mostert limited by an injury, but if the offensive line's looking better and the secondary has, has good cornerbacks, I think you'll take those problems. So Miami dolphins, I don't know what excuse to come up with. This is probably as much as you can ask for against the caliber of opponent like this, the matchup that I'm going to watch. I just, I laid it all out for you. If I wanted to geek out, I would point out that Nick Bolton is now missing from the chiefs defense with a wrist injury and the dolphins for all we talk about Tyreek and Jalen Waddle. We know the dolphins can run the hell out of the ball. I think that's something to watch, but how do you go against the matchup of Tyreek Hill, who used to be a chief, one of the best chiefs of the Andy Reid era. And Oh, by the way, he's on pace to rewrite basically the entire receiver record book in a single season, how the chiefs deal with him. Their defense has been very good this season. It's been the strength of the team. If we're being honest, other than Patrick Mahomes still being the best quarterback alive, but in terms of units, chiefs defense has been the more consistently good side of that team, basically all season long. How do they handle Tyreek Hill? If they handle Tyreek Hill, can they handle Jalen Waddle? That's always going to be the storyline with the dolphins. This doesn't have to be it for Miami. I know it's still halfway through the season, but you would at least like to see a challenge. You would like to see the Dolphins in it to the end, preferably winning this game. It's something that's eluded them all of this season and at times last season as well, particularly down the stretch. Like I said, might not be fair, but this is going to say a lot about the narrative of the Dolphins because even with all their struggles, we trust that the Chiefs will be there in January and even possibly into February. Can't say the same for Miami, but a game like this could go a long way toward changing people's minds. Sunday starts with a huge matchup in the AFC. It also ends with a huge matchup in the AFC. The nightcap is the Buffalo Bills heading to Cincinnati to take on the Bengals. The headline here should be fairly obvious. I don't think you can even think about Bills Bengals without mentioning DeMar Hamlin, the Bills safety who collapsed mid game in Cincinnati last January miraculous story, miraculous survival and recovery, tremendous effort by the the Buffalo Bills athletic training staff, tremendous efforts by the University of Cincinnati doctors and hospital. Obviously a story that captivated the country, even the world. And it's, it's remarkable to think how smoothly DeMar Hamlin's recovery has gone. Hamlin's smooth recovery and everything that's come after that episode makes it easy to lose track of the fact that it only happened 10 months ago, almost to the day he he returned to the team in the spring. He was part of the off season program. He participated in training camp. He played in the preseason. It's all gone according to plan to the point that Demar Hamlin is on the Buffalo bills. Remember he was a reserve heading into last season. He got a lot of extra playing time because of injuries. Buffalo bills haven't needed to call much on Demar Hamlin this season. He's been a healthy scratch in seven of eight games primarily playing on special teams. Now it comes full circle. I think it, it's interesting to note Bill's head coach, Sean, uh, Sean McDermott. He's already stated that Hamlin's participation in this game will be decided by football, whether or not they need him to be up or down. It's not going to be an emotional decision, but 
the emotions of this game are going to be very, very real. You've already seen DeMar talk about it. You've seen his Bills teammates talk about it. That was something that made an indelible impact on this team at the time and will continue to, especially when you go to Cincinnati where it all occurred. So regardless of what role DeMar Hamlin plays in the game, whether or not he plays at all, it's going to be an emotional night for him. It's going to be an emotional situation for both teams. Cause remember the Bengals were a part of that as well. Obviously not an easy thing to go through regardless of whether he's your teammate or not. So I expect it to be an emotional night. I expect it to be poignant. And one more time, I, I couldn't be happier for DeMar Hamlin that most of this conversation here in November centers around football. When you do get to the actual matchup, I think it goes without saying this is about as scintillating a game as you could expect. I don't think Bill's Bengals is on the level of Bengals Chiefs. They haven't played enough for all of that. But this was a playoff matchup last year, and the Bengals took it to the Bills in their stadium. Bills were the higher-seeded team. I have a feeling Buffalo feels some type of way about that. You know, the, the bills were the toast of this conference outside of the chiefs for so long. And in a lot of ways, it feels like the Bengals showed up and kind of took their shine. I would imagine the bills would like to get some of that back and Oh boy, what timing because Joe Burrow and the Bengals offense appears to be back. Been waiting on it. We know Joe dealt with the calf, but if last week's win against San Francisco is any indicator, this is the team that showed up and has taken the AFC by storm over the last couple of years. Burrow looks like his old mobile confident self, the guy that can buy time in the pocket, the guy that can shrug off sacks in the pocket and still complete throws Jamar chase. It was a slow couple of weeks to start, but he is back to looking like one of the absolute best receivers in football. I think one side of this matchup feels perfectly clear to me, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but when you look at the injuries that the Bills have suffered on their defense particularly, Matt Milano out, Tredavious White out, the Bills have dropped back to the pack defensively. They were playing some dominant football over the first three, four weeks of the season. They're still not bad, but you can see a definitive drop-off, and I think a lot of that is because of who they've lost. I also think that's why they traded for Green Bay cornerback Rasul Douglas during the week. <laughs> Did you see the Bills give him the injury designation of just got here? First of all, quality work by the Bills PR team, but he's been there for at least a few days now. I would expect him to be active for this game. I would expect him to have at least some type of role, but still, the Bills are 28th in defensive DVOA over the last month. Meanwhile, the Bengals have rocketed up all of the metrics in on offense. They've been playing well two out of the last three weeks. And again, the coup de gras, if you will, against San Francisco. I trust the Cincinnati Bengals to score 24 or more points in this game. The matchup I want to watch, I think that the thing that will decide this game is just how Josh Allen Bill's offensive coordinator and Ken Dorsey, how those guys deal with whatever Bengals defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo is going to bring. And I don't say Lou Anarumo to discount the Bengals talent. I don't think the Bengals get enough credit for how many dogs they have on defense, but Lou Anarumo at this point is almost on that bill Belichick level of the guy that, you know, is going to take away what you do best. The guy that's going to make you play left-handed or tie one hand behind your back, whatever Bengals have a scary knack for doing that over the last month, Cincinnati's defense, allowing 16 points per game. 
That includes just 17 to San Francisco the other day. And I actually looked this up. Obviously, playing in the AFC and specifically the AFC North, Luana Rumo's defenses have the dubious distinction of going up against some of the real heavyweights in this league, whether it's Lamar Jackson being in his division, Patrick Mahomes, which we know has become a pretty nice little rivalry in the AFC, and even Josh Allen, who he's had to play twice as the Bills defensive, or excuse me, as the Bengals defensive coordinator. Over his last eight games against those three guys, Luana Rumo's defenses have only given up one 300-yard passing performance. That was to Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs a couple years ago, averaging 252 yards a game, 63 completion percentage, and again, allowing 16 points per game over the last month or so of the season. I'm confident he's going to have a plan for Josh Allen. And what do we always say about the Buffalo Bills is as good as Josh Allen is, it all tends to start and stop with him. I will give the Bills this credit. They looked about as diverse, multiple, scary, whatever word you want to use. They looked about as good as possible in their last outing against Tampa Bay. Remember, the injury to Dawson Knox forced them to go into a lot more 11 personnel. They ran 11 personnel, three wide receivers, 76% of the time against Tampa Bay, and they absolutely blew up. I wonder if that wrinkle is going to be something that they stick with here, even though Quentin Morris, their backup tight end, is available for this game. And I wonder what Lou Anarumo does about that. Again, it's the chess match of how you play it. You saw he had a fantastic plan for Brock Purdy. They clogged the middle of the field. They confused the young quarterback. Josh Allen, a little bit easier to confuse, but I do think the Bengals have a wonderful front that should be able to create pressure without bringing a ton of blitzes. I would imagine the throwing lanes are going to be pretty clogged up. And I just think that this is going to be a hell of a challenge for the Buffalo Bills. Fortunately for us, the viewers, this doesn't seem like a game where injury is going to be a huge factor, at least not going in. Trey Hendrickson, the very, very underrated Bengals defensive end. He was back at practice Thursday. He had a foot injury last week. I would imagine he's going to play Orlando Brown Jr. Bengals left tackle dealing with a groin injury. I would expect he's going to play. Josh Allen dealing with a shoulder injury, but he's already clarified as if there was any doubt he will be playing in this game. I think he said, if the game was today, I'd be in. I get it. Looks like all of the primary pieces are ready to go. And this, I mean, this should just be a great measuring stick opportunity. I know we say that a lot, but you think about the struggles the Bills have had over the last three or four weeks. A win here goes to show you that those problems are, are temporary. You can still beat a quality team. And the Bengals, for the slow start to the season that they had, even with the Bills' struggles, beating this team, overcoming a guy in the MVP conversation like Josh Allen, I think we know about Joey B and Jamar Chase, like I just said, but Getting a win against that offense just further cements how highly we should think of Lou Anarumo and his defense and how seriously we should take the Bengals as a contender, even if we thought otherwise at the start of the season. In the early window in Baltimore, an upstart NFC playoff contender heads to face the Baltimore Ravens and show the league that they're for real. Wait, didn't we just do this like two weeks ago? Oh yeah, that was the Lions and they got smacked down 38 to six by the Ravens. It's the Seahawks turn this time. Feels very, very similar. The sneaky playoff contender. Maybe we shouldn't call the Seahawks sneaky anymore. They're on top of the NFC West, but how much different might we feel about them if they can topple the Baltimore Ravens? And conversely, if the Ravens can beat down another NFC contender, 
What does that say about how highly we should think of them? I think that's the headline storyline for me, for all of the attention paid to these offenses. I can't wait to see what these defenses do to counteract them. You should know by now how good the Ravens defense is. We talk about it on this show. They're at the top of all of the metrics. They have a historical DVOA apparently, which is pretty incredible because people have been keeping track of that for a lot longer than you might think. But for all the attention that we might pay to Seattle's offense, the defense is allowing just 12 and a half points per game since week three. Remember, they won a thriller against Detroit in overtime. And since that game, all the way back in week two, they haven't allowed, they've only allowed 20 points to one opponent. Weirdly enough, the Andy Dalton Panthers put up 27 on them and everybody else has been struggling to even get to 20. Even the game that they lost to Cincinnati, the Bengals only managed 17. So what gives, which defense plays better? We know all about the, the Ravens and what they do under Mike McDonald, but Seattle with this, this young fun secondary, they traded for Leonard Williams. What role might he have? What impact might he make moving forward? I'm not ready to compare the Seahawks to some of their predecessors on defense, but this is a fun, talented unit. And if there's anybody equipped to give Lamar Jackson fits, maybe it's these guys, maybe even more so than the Detroit lions. A couple weeks ago, the matchup I want to watch, that would be the Ravens front or, or the Raven. Yeah. The Ravens front seven, the Ravens pass rush against Seattle's offensive line. How do you handle the way Baltimore pressures you? Might be the first time all season that Seattle has gone into consecutive games with the same starting five on the offensive line. Check this out. Seahawks have used 30 different players on offense. That's tied for the second most in the NFL. And their most common lineup has only been used 2.1% of the time. These guys, in addition to shuffling personnel for schematics, these guys have dealt with a rash of injuries. Left guard, Damian Lewis, Center Evan Brown are pretty much the only members of their offensive line who haven't missed extended time. Charles Cross, the left tackle, Abe Lucas, the right tackle, have both missed a ton of games. Cross is back now, but this offensive line has had next to no consistency. Maybe this is the start of some consistency for them. Most of Seattle's offensive line depth, either rookie draft picks or guys that they signed off of other people's practice squads. It's remarkable how well they've played with this little consistency on the front five. You hear plenty of football coaches say the biggest correlation of success is how comfortable your five blockers are with each other. Has not been the case in Seattle. Hasn't kept them from a five and two start, but here come the Baltimore Ravens. They lead the league in sacks. They're top in defensive DVOA. Like I said, they're near the top of the league in defensive EPA success rate. All the categories that the nerds say are important. The Ravens are great at it. And the most interesting thing for me, we've talked before. They don't have a premier edge rusher. Yes. I know Jadevi and Clowney is there. Wouldn't, I think we stopped calling him a premier edge rusher like five years ago. Kyle Van Noy. All due respect to him, had a very nice career, but this ain't Miles Garrett or TJ Watt we're talking about. That's the fun part. Mike McDonald loves to get pressure from a, ver a variety of different places. The Ravens, DBs, and linebackers, true off-ball linebackers. I'm not talking about David Ajabo or Odafe Owe, like those guys, no. Off-ball linebackers and DBs have 36 combined pressures and 12 combined sacks for Baltimore this year. So. 
You never know where the pressure is going to come from. You never know who's going to get sent on a blitz or, or get sent to draw some pressure. Can't wait to see how the Seattle offensive line deals with it. I'm sure they're not looking forward to it, but they have been up to a lot of challenges so far this season. I think that is a fun little chess match in what hopefully is a much more fun trip for an NFC team to Baltimore than what we saw a couple weeks ago. It's not quite the frozen tundra yet, but up at a chilly Lambeau field, the Green Bay Packers are hosting the LA Rams this weekend. Two teams that are at a crossroads, one team that isn't sure who's playing quarterback for them. I had a chance to catch up with the guy who's calling the game. Daryl Moose Johnston joined me to talk Packers Rams. Check that out. All right, Daryl, my, my first impression from this Rams trip up to Green Bay is that the Rams seem like a team that could use a bye week in the worst way. And ironically, <laughs> they get it after this. So they've got to do one more game before they get that week off. Matthew Stafford hasn't practiced yet this week. I know I mean, if he can't go, he can't go. But I am mm-hmm. curious, in a situation like this, with such an important position, your quarterback, and again, you've got the bye week right there. If it's even a question, does this feel like a situation where you maybe have to protect your quarterback from himself and say, hey, you'll get some extra time off. Maybe we go with uh, Brett Rippon for this game. I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, I, I just watching the way that Matthew Stafford plays the game, you know, he's one of those guys you're going to have to protect from himself. Uh, when it comes to injuries, he's always going to feel as though he can play. Uh, I'll never forget that clip, you know, from when he was in Detroit and he's got the separated non-throwing shoulder and he's still out there playing. And the one guy comes up and he's about ready to, you know, hit him over the top of the shoulder. He's like, no, 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 no. Um, you know, he just, he's been a warrior. And and I think it's a part of his game that, that people aren't aware of. I just think his personality doesn't kind of correlate with that, that kind of warrior mentality from the quarterback position. So uh, I think, and it, everybody goes into this with the best interest of the player in mind. But but I definitely think you bring up a great point. I think that that Sean McVay may have to protect Matthew. Um, I think he'll be involved in that conversation and the decision. Uh, but when you've got an opportunity to really get, you know, kind of two weeks uh, of, of healing started in that process. And if there isn't a if there isn't a fracture and there's no you know severe ligament damage, if it's really just a sprain with some swelling that you're working through, um, you know, th- that extra time would would prove to be very valuable on the backside. Um, and now it's just how confident you feel with Brett Rippon going in uh, and, and playing that game and, and trying to get a win before you go into your bye. You know, you, you want to make sure you've, you've got that victory. You don't want to go in, you know, with a, with a three game losing streak, uh, you know, into your bye. that that's just not a it's not a good feel for anybody in the organization. That was another thing I wanted to get to. And I think it, it pertains to both of these teams, really. I mean, even we all get it. Green Bay was bound to be in for a transitional year without Aaron Rodgers, but this is, it's still a franchise in Green Bay that's been used to competing and contending for the better part of three decades at this point. And the Rams have been to two Super Bowls in the last five years, but it looks awfully dicey for the team that loses this game. It's not a place that either franchise has been comfortable being over the last, well, for, for Green Bay forever, but even over the last five, six years, what do you think that does to the mood of an organization where you're you're sitting there thinking, hey, this could be uncharted territory if this weekend doesn't go the way we want it to? Well, I, I just think because of the circumstances coming into the season that you've got a little bit, you don't want to admit to it. You don't want that vibe to be out there, you know, in your in your locker room around your team. But when you decide to move on from Aaron Rodgers, you know, you're going to have some growing pains, you know, regardless of the fact that you anticipated this at some point. 
by drafting Jordan Love and prepping him over the last three seasons to get ready to take over when that day comes. Um, and that that's always going to be a bumpy ride. It's not the easiest thing in the world, especially when you've got a, a very young supporting cast around you. So, you know, this team is going to learn and grow together moving forward. I, I think maybe the, the challenging part for Green Bay right now is – it started off well, and then it's kind of been a gradual decline, uh, you know, over the last five, six weeks. So, um, you know, th that's been, you know, a, a tough part for them. For the Rams, you know, this is still unwinding from that, hey, we're pushing all of our chips to the center of the table. We're taking a shot at the Super Bowl. Uh, we'll deal with the challenges, you know, that, that lie ahead in the future when those get here. And, and we had them earlier in the year against Pittsburgh. And uh, they, they called it a, a competitive rebuild, um, you know, kind of coming into the season. And I, I think everybody on the staff saw that, you know, the, the rookie class was going to be very was going to be very good and be able to contribute. Uh, there were some good pieces in place that had grown, you know, over the last couple of seasons. So I, I think that there was a different look at it. But, you know, when you when you lose Matthew Stafford, I think that's that's one of the hard things that's going on right now for the Rams, because I think that there was kind of a positive feeling going into that Pittsburgh game. Um, and then since that time to lose that Pittsburgh game the way they did, I mean, they had it in hand, um, you know, the crazy situation at the end uh, with the with the play that was was unable to be, uh, you know, challenged. Um, then you go to Dallas and you, the, the wheels just absolutely come off. Um, you know, I've been a part of a, a game where you play five minutes of really, really bad football and you just can't ever dig yourself out of that hole. So for them to lose again now against Green Bay going into that bye week, I, I think that that would kind of bring back a little bit of that thought process of what we what what our, our our expectations could be for this year kind of going through that competitive rebuild. It is amazing how everybody says it's a week to week league and you're you're so right. Like a week ago the Rams are or even two and even a week ago the Rams are hey maybe this is a sneaky wild card team and now we're we're talking about kind of holding the rope until you can get to the bye week. There's another thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned this is this is the youngest offense in the league in Green Bay, regardless of Jordan Love, the, the offensive line, the skill position. It seems like there's a lot of debate up there right now about who's at fault for for the poor play on offense. Is it Jordan Love? Is it the supporting cast? Is it the head coach? I'm curious, as somebody that's been around the game as long as you have, when you watch the Packers, can you can you even get a, a fair evaluation of Jordan Love right now with the youth and, and the mistakes that they're seeing on offense right now? Well, they should have that evaluation already done, right? He's been around them for three years. So, I mean, you know who Jordan Love is. You know, it's his opportunity to go out and play. And when you create the NFL's youngest offense and, and choose to surround him uh, that way, you're, you're going to have some growing pains. It, it's it's always hard for a group to learn how to win together. And, and it's a process that everybody goes through when you go through transition. And that's exactly what Green Bay is going through right now. Um, I think that uh, you, you've seen some of the comments coming out. You know, the one thing you don't want to see is repeated mistakes. I don't know how many of those Jordan Love has had. I think one of the consistent things that we're seeing is a little bit of a struggle with the deep ball. Um, you know, the chemistry between the the receivers and, and him as a quarterback. So, you know, th there's a few things there that that I would just say is the process of a group growing and learning together. Uh, we were very young in Dallas and, and, you know, things didn't start out well for us. You know, we were the youngest team in the NFL when we won our first Super Bowl, uh, but there was a lot of growing pains getting to that spot. So this is to be expected. So I, I don't think that this is, uh, you know, anything negative on the development of Jordan Love. Uh, I, I think the Green Bay 
when you're around a guy day in, day out, even though he's not playing, you, you get to know who he is as a man. And, you, you know, you, you evaluated him as a player coming out of college. So you, you kind of know the talent. You're pretty sure you, you, you've you got what you wanted. Um, so I, I think they should be fine in, in what their evaluation is with Jordan Love as their quarterback moving forward. Now it's just an understanding of, you know, a young skill group, young supporting cast around him, and an offensive line that's really struggled. I mean, I, I think that that's the biggest thing. When you lose David Bakhtiari, you know, in, in, in the first game of the season, it's, it's not going to be good. And we've seen that. In Cleveland with Jack Conklin, uh, we've seen that in Seattle uh, with Abe Lucas. Uh, you know, you go into that season, and in week one, your best tackle goes down for the year. That's a tough. That's a tough one to dig out of, especially when you've got a lot of young guys that you're counting on to to kind of help this offense grow and develop. I know he doesn't play on offense, but it still seems noteworthy that during the week. Green Bay traded away Rasul Douglas, all the word coming out of Green Bay. This is, this is a beloved veteran. This is a, a locker room guy. I understand that's the nature of the business and getting a third round pick seems like a, a perfectly fair return to me, but I'm curious from the player side of this, you talk about a young team learning how to grow and win. How do you compartmentalize that? Uh, when, when you lose a guy that, that clearly seems to be very important in that locker room. Yeah, this is this is a lot different than than when I played. You know, it, it's something that, you know, I, I played half of my career under the old business style, and I played the second half of my career with free agency in place. Um, people were still not really aggressive with trades. You know, when we came down to the trade deadline, there wasn't a lot of activity. You know, a lot of that stuff was it was still done. You know, in the off season, leading up to the beginning of the season. Um, you know, kind of the way things were done under the old model. So even though we were moving to the free agency component. Um, you know, a lot of the business transactions were still happening the way they happened in the under the previous way of business. So, um, you know, fortunately for me, it, it, I never really had to go through the process of losing not only a teammate, but a guy that you'd become very close to. And, you know, just to see, you know, Keyshawn Nixon and his response, you know, to losing, you know, not just a teammate, but but a good friend, a guy that you counted on away from the building. You know, those are things that that I didn't have to deal with in my career. So I, I think it's very challenging. Um, and as you point out, you know, it, this is a secondary, you know, with with Jair Alexander in, in the back issues. Um, there, there's some youth there. Eric Stokes is on IR. You know, there, there's just some things um, in the secondary that aren't settled. And it seemed like the one consistent thing that you saw on film was Rasul Douglas. So, um, you know, the organization felt uh, it was in the best interest moving forward and, and making that deal. And, and I think you heard, you know, some comments from the front office, you know, they came to us a couple of days prior. Uh, we didn't feel there was fair value there with the, the initial offer. But when they came back and it changed the terms, uh, we felt it was in our best interest, something that we couldn't turn down to help us get better moving forward. So that that's, again, that's, kind of going through this process of, of learning how to win during transition uh, that has a lot of bumps in the road and, and they're feeling it on the defensive side of the ball just as well. One last one for you. I know your Cowboy teams were good enough that all your playoff battles against Green Bay happened at home, but I am curious if you, and honestly, even as a broadcaster, player, broadcaster, whatever, if you would just have any special memories of Lambeau Field or or what you think about when you get to go up there. Oh, Lambo's one of the places that you have to go to. I mean, if you're a football player in the NFL, I mean, it's it's the it's the mecca. Um, so there's just so much tradition. And and you know, my my dad was a huge Packer fan growing up. So you know, I've got that influence as well. So um, you know, for me, uh, you know, my rookie year, uh, we we played up there. 
Um, I think I had, I think I have my longest play, you know, that might've been Kansas city. I got to play in Arrowhead and, and Lambeau, you know, my rookie year. So, you know, two of the, the best places you can play in the NFL. Um, and then to your point, it was one of those weird schedule things where we didn't get back to Lambeau for a long time. Um, I think the next time we were going to have an opportunity to play there, uh, I was out for the season uh, with my neck injury and I actually went up on the trip and I worked with our equipment guys and went over with them early in the morning and, and, you know, got to meet red uh, on the green Bay side. And um, you know, just to see how hard those guys work leading up to the game. Um, you know, we come from the hotel on the bus and we walk in and the locker room's all set up and everything's exactly how it is. <laughs> There's a lot of time and energy and effort that goes into that. And I got to experience that firsthand. I mean, we, we got there at five o'clock in the morning um, and worked nonstop up until the first guys were walking in at about eight 45. So, um, you know, that, that, that was opening for me from, you know, respect that I had for our support staff uh, when you talk about the equipment guys, but, but that's how much it meant to me, you know, to want to, to be able to go back to Lambo and just, you know, being in that environment and, you know, just the way the fans are and, and now the way that that stadium has grown and everything they've added to it, um, you know, it, it's, it's awesome. And, and, you know, we had an opportunity to visit, uh, you know, with, you know, the, the Rams people that we wanted to talk to today leading up to the game. And, you know, we, we had a chance to talk to Brett Rippon and, and, and he's, he's excited to play, you know, he, he's been there before. This will be, the, I think the second time he's been there, uh, didn't get a chance to play last time. He was just on the sideline and, and still loved it. Just loved the atmosphere. And I think everybody who has an opportunity, you know, uh, as the visiting team coming into Lambeau, um, you know, there, there's just so much respect for, you know, what, what that organization means to the NFL, what that stadium means to the NFL. So uh, I tell everybody, if, if, if you get a chance to go to Lambeau field and enjoy a game, um, you know, please do and, and, and go at a time when it's maybe not your team and you can just enjoy the environment and, and really have a good time where you're not, you're not going on that emotional roller coaster If your team's not having a great day. I, you know, I, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to go a few times, but now I'm, I'm trying to catch a flight and get back, maybe get a beer brought. I think you, you summed it up perfectly. <laughs> uh, I, I hope the game is a game is a great one. Daryl. I appreciate the time. Thanks. Yeah, you got it. Looking forward to it. Ooh, we have covered a lot of ground today, but there's still more to get to. There's still eight matchups on the docket. Don't you worry. We are going to get you ready for every single game in the NFL in week nine. This is the part of the show. You know the drill before we get you out of here. It's the hurry up offense. Not going to give you 10 minutes on every single matchup. We'd all be here all day. But before we get out of here, I'm going to give you a little nugget, something interesting, something fun about every matchup left on the schedule, all eight of them. My wonderful producers, they're going to give me three and a half minutes right here. I'm going to try to get you out of here, get you on with your weekend as quickly, as efficiently as possible. So let's start this thing off with the Minnesota Vikings at the Atlanta Falcons starting now. Who doesn't want to see a rematch of the 1998 NFC Championship game? Apologies, Vikings fans. I felt like I had to. I'm sorry for bringing that up. It's a battle of the backups. Feels like a theme for the NFL right now. Jaron Hall looking like he's going to make his first NFL start for Minnesota. Josh Dobbs is there. Not quite ready to go yet, according to Kevin O'Connell, the head coach. I'm going with Taylor Heineke. He replaces Desmond Ritter. Taylor Heineke is taking a team to the NFL playoffs. I'm going to lean with the guy with experience playing at home, but 
Can't wait for this moment for Jaron Hall. Should be a ton of fun. Bears at Saints. Big line. Eight and a half points for the New Orleans Saints, and I understand why. Shine kind of faded from Tyson Bajan's glass slipper when he was in Las Vegas. I'm guessing it's not going to be a whole lot different in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. Not sure if Saints head coach Dennis Allen is a good head coach. I do think he's a hell of a defensive coordinator, a hell of a defensive coach. I think a very veteran Saints defense is going to make life very difficult on Tyson Bajan. Commanders of Patriots, I don't know what to say other than that the vibes are just really, I don't know, the vibes don't feel great here. I think I like Washington's boomer bust offense more than I like New England's grab bag, whatever they got going on there. We'll see what happens. My guess is it's not going to be super pretty. Buccaneers at Texans. Seen CJ Stroud take advantage of better defenses than Tampa's. I know that. But the loss to Carolina, it's a reminder that this league will humble you. I like this Bucks team. You can criticize Baker Mayfield all you want. I, I think they've got the right pieces. I admire the way they came back against Buffalo the other night. If Tampa doesn't win, I think they at least cover the three-point spread. Maybe I'm wrong. I refuse to write the Bucks out of the NFC South race until I have to. Cardinals at Browns. Looks like Clayton Toon is going to start for Arizona. That's really all I need to know. I like Clayton Toon coming out of the University of Houston, but this is the league's best defense in your first start at the dog pound. I don't like it at all. Not a, t- not a, not a good spot to be in for Clayton Toon. Colts at Panthers. Glad the Panthers got off the losing streak. They're still not a good team. The Colts are a very mediocre team. Not usually a great place to be, but in this case, I think it is. I'll take Gardner Minshew in this one. Giants at Raiders. Here's a fun fact for you. The Raiders opened as three and a half point favorites against the New York Giants. Then they fired their head coach and their general manager. And then they benched their starting quarterback in favor of a rookie. And they're still two point favorites. That's how much the line moved. That's how much Vegas and betters think about the New York Giants heading into this matchup. I can't say I blame them. Maybe we'll see Tommy DeVito in this game. I'm not sure, but it's a season from hell for the New York Giants. And at home, I think I'll take the Las Vegas Raiders. Chargers at Jets wrapping this thing up on Monday night. Do you realize this is the third time in four weeks the Chargers have played a standalone primetime football game? It's true. Strange, but true. What's even stranger is that last week was shockingly drama free. They just kind of dispatched Tyson Bajan and the bears. That's how I know win or lose something stupid's going to happen Monday night at MetLife stadium. Of course it will. The jets are involved. The chargers are there. We're all going to have to watch it. Give me the wackiest outcome possible. I'll probably regret it, but I'll take the chargers to cover the very small spread. I got in under the clock today. That's what happens when we have bye weeks. I, yeah, that's how it's supposed to work. Some teams are supposed to take some time off and I don't have to do 11 or 12 of these things in three and a half minutes. I hope it's like that every week. That does it for the show. It's going to be a wonderful week nine of NFL action. I feel like I say this every week, but I think this is as excited as I've, as I've been. I, I hope that just keeps happening. That's, that's how it works, right? As the drama escalates, I'm rambling. That does it for our show. We will be here Monday to break it all down for you, to recap the action, to get you ready for the Chargers on Monday night. Go find us on Spotify. Go find us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. However you get your podcasts, however you digest your NFL content, we'll be there for you. We appreciate it. I will see you all on Monday.